Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, so today's paper is a comparative study of word embeddings for reading comprehension by Bovendingra Hanshalu, Raslan Salakudinov, and William Cohen. Uh, these are folks at CMU. Uh, the two-sentence pitch here of this paper is that they're studying how the, initial, the initialization conditions uh, under which you train a particular model can, in some cases, matter more than the structure of the model itself. And so if you're not really careful about how you um, compare models, if you, if you don't keep all of the initialization consistence constant, you can arrive at incorrect conclusions about which model is superior. So I feel like uh, this idea that we uh, we should care a lot about how we initialize neural networks and the fact that we should control for every uh, change uh, we're going to make in the neural network uh, is generally considered to be uh, good practices for a long time. Why do you think this paper uh, is contributing to what we already know? I think the interesting point here is the size of the effect in word embeddings. So. Uh, they have this figure here that shows that uh, accuracy can change by 4% absolute just by changing the word embeddings that you use, the way that you initialize your word embeddings. And that difference is larger than uh, the difference in the, the gain that you get by switching to a better model structure. I see. So what, what aspects of the word embeddings do they uh, account for or do they measure? Because I can think of many things that you can study about word embeddings, including their size, their, the way you, treat, you train them, the model itself, or the training data? Yeah, they in particular looked at a couple of things. One was which method do you use to, uh, what algorithm do you use to create the word embeddings using glove or word to vec, uh, skipgram vectors, the, so the kind of vector that you get, and then how large the vectors are and what corpus you train them on. These are, they didn't do an exhaustive comparison of all of the options there, but they varied those different things. So which of these uh, did they find to be important, or maybe all of them are important? All of them are def definitely important. They did make a recommendation that you should just use off-the-shelf glove vectors that are 100-dimensional. Uh, at least for these tasks, that seems to be true. Uh, I'm, I don't know that they would stand by that claim that that's a general thing you should use across all of NLP. But um, it's interesting that they, they do have a good set of experiments that show that uh, across all of their, vari their variations on this task re of reading comprehension, um, these vectors do do significantly better for whatever reason. Right. I guess when uh, we're before someone releases a set of embeddings, they put a lot of effort in tuning them and making sure, um, yeah, they do all the tricks uh, in the book in order to make sure these are good embeddings before sharing them. So maybe there's uh, there is a reason for this. Yeah, that's a good point. There, there was one other interesting aspect of this paper. Uh, it wasn't just about uh, how you initialize word embeddings. They also looked at how you treat out-of-vocabulary tokens at test time. So uh, maybe the what you would say the standard thing to do in NLP, at least what I've always thought everyone did, uh, is from your training data, you estimate a vocabulary. So you take all of the tokens that you see some number of times at training time, and you say, I have enough data to estimate good parameters for these words, and I will use them in, my, in what we'll call my vocabulary. And the rest of the words I'll map to some token that I'll call OOV, out of vocabulary. And I will just lump all of them together as if they were the same token. And then 
um, at test time, when I see a word I haven't seen before, at least I have estimated some parameters associated with rare words, so I can do something reasonable there. What this paper does is it says, actually, because we're dealing with word embeddings, this might not be the best idea. For instance, there might be a word that you didn't see very much at training time, but is in the set of pre-trained vectors that you have. For instance, if, you're, um, if your training data is small, maybe you have several thousand or tens of thousands of training examples for some particular task. Uh, a lot of these pre-trained vectors were trained on billions or trillions of tokens and so have much more data to estimate good vectors. And so if you use this OOV token representation at test time, you're throwing away information that was in that vector, the pre-trained vector, that you could have made use of. Even though the other word embeddings for the, the words in the training data have drifted away from the original estimation, this still seems to be uh, a useful signal, are you saying? Yeah, there's some... Uh, that, I guess that's a bit of a different issue. They didn't look at that particularly, I don't think. Um, uh, the, the question to me is how much do the word embeddings actually drift and is it, a, is it an important problem? I think you've looked at that yourself in some other tasks. But this is, so like for part of speech tagging or other things, like maybe that matters more. This is looking particularly at reading comprehension. And so there's an interesting aspect to this task that makes how you handle these OOB tokens really important. And that is that a lot of these are entities. So uh, say, for example, you saw um, Bovendingra in, uh, the, in the question that you get and in the passage that you're looking at. You probably are not going to have an embedding for those tokens because they're rare words, at least in English corpora. And so uh, if you treat this as OOV, um, the reading comprehension task is essentially a matching task where you're trying to find what parts of the passage contain information about the question that you're asking. And if there are several parts that are OOV in your passage and you're trying to match an OOV token in the question, you don't have a good way to distinguish between OOV tokens in the passage, different OOV tokens. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess if, um, if someone tries to define features that try to capture the similarity, like um, the edit distance between uh, the words that are out of vocabulary, maybe that will um, obviate the need for, uh, for modeling uh, different uh, Words you need. Yeah, that's a good point. And how other models handle this is do like a character level uh, convolutional neural net encoder. Uh, so you get in addition to some pre-trained word, word embedding to represent tokens, you also do this character level CNN and concatenate that with the word embedding. And I think that gets largely the same kind of information. Um, what this work did, instead of using a character level CNN, they I'm pretty confident they did not use character level encoders for this. But so in the setting that you're not using a character level encoder to handle this, what you should do, they say, uh, with good evidence and good reason, is assign random vectors, random unique vectors, to each token at test time that, it, that, is, that would have otherwise gotten the same OOV representation. So that's removing the bias, but it's not informing uh, the prediction. Well, it, it definitely can, because imagine you have some LSTM encoder that's encoding the question and comparing it to the encoding of the passage. You could imagine the LSTM's hidden state taking the word representation and copying it into the state, right? And yeah. so if you have a random vector that you've encoded in the question, and the same random vector, like you've never seen this vector before, but it's a random vector, and it's the same in the, pa in the question and the passage, then the LSTM has some means of connecting the dots. I see. So it works when they're identical. 
Yeah, so I, it, it feels to me like this is more of an issue when you're when you have matching kinds of problems, and I'm I'm not sure you would get the kinds of gains that they show on other tasks that don't have this matching problem, like for named entity recognition or part of speech tagging. Absolutely, yeah. It would have been interesting if they also analyzed the character embedding and whether uh, character embedding basically solves the problem. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Yep. So uh, those were the high-level high takeaways to me. Um, I think this is a really good example of the reason that you need really controlled experiments in NLP, especially in deep learning, because getting the initialization correct is hard, uh, as everyone who's tried to train a deep model knows. And changing the initialization condition can matter more than changing your model. And so you can make erroneous conclusions if you're not really careful in how you set up your experiments. And this is a really important lesson that anyone doing research in NLP right now really needs to know. Yeah, that sounds like a great lesson to uh, keep in mind going forward. All right, thank you, Matt, for presenting this paper. Next time, we'll be talking about uh, a paper titled Bidirectional Attention Flow for Machine Comprehension, written by Minjun Su and other colleagues at University of Washington and Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Thank you.